0: Well, good morning. So glad that you could be here today. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm John, one of the pastors here at North Park. And uh, it is a great time to invite others to join in in our worship times. And you uh, have seen our schedule and trust that you'll be praying about who you might invite uh, to be part of that so that they could hear about the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, this is the first of a three-week series, and this will take us through the Easter season. And so we're going to kick it off today, and we're going to talk about resurrecting hope and... Uh, Here's the schedule for the next uh, next couple of weeks. Um, today we're going to talk about the hope that we have because we have a convicted king. And then on Good Friday, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the hope we have because we have a crucified king. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, uh, the hope we have because of a risen king. And then we'll look a little bit at the follow-up and the legacy of hope that Christ has given us because of the mission of the king. And so we trust that will be an encouragement to you and uh, others who might come looking for hope, really believe that... Uh, All of us need that uh, this morning. So, uh, a convicted king. I wanted to ask you a question to get started. How many of you guys can swim? Yeah? What do you think is the farthest that you've ever swum? I don't know. Was it swum, swam, swim, swimmed? Let's go with that one. What's the farthest you think you've ever dog paddled or swam very nicely? Talk to the person next to you if you don't mind doing that. If not, just think about yourself. What's the farthest, either in distance or amount of time that you think you 've ever swam before, all right, you got to figure it out. I always like to joke with you that the answer I heard was blah, 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 blah. right so um i I grew up in Florida. We had a pool. we went to the uh, lakes around pretty often and swam and uh, Went to the ocean. So I consider myself a decent swimmer. I didn't swim uh, on a, as a sport or anything like that. But, but about 20 years ago, I was on a mission trip with some high schoolers. We were in rural Pennsylvania and uh, got into some really cool things. We were able to help some churches do some outreach. And then uh, they said, hey, somebody in our church, they have the swimming pond. It's like, oh, this is cool. So we went to the farm and we got there, and sure enough, they had this uh, pond. And everybody, it was super hot, so everybody got out of the cars, the vans, and just took off running. And uh, we felt like we were in a in a, a TV show with music playing, just running towards that water. And then we just dove right in. We ran off the head of the dock and we dove in and started swimming. And I thought, "Oh, this is so good. It feels so good." Then I started to notice like that most people were passing me or were starting to get farther away from me. And then I realized I'm by myself. And then. I look and really this thing was like as big as Lake Michigan. It had to be because I wasn't getting anywhere fast and I was getting really tired and nobody stayed back to check on me. I took these kids like all over the world. I've taken them to Brazil. I'm taking them to Pennsylvania. I'm trying to help them better their life and everything. And not one of them stayed behind to check on me and make sure I was OK. And for a minute there, I really did think like I might drown right out here in the middle of this pond. And I started doing uh, floating in my back and doing this kind of thing. But it probably wasn't that far. So I don't know how far you figured out. If you figured it out in uh, in, in possibly miles or maybe you swam for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. But I know that I'm no Florence May Chadwick. Anybody know that name at all? She uh, was born in 1918. And she was the first female swimmer, to swim across the English Channel. She did it both ways. But she also was the first one to cross what's called the Catalina Channel. There's a Catalina Island that's about 26 miles off the coast of California. And she set out to be the first woman to swim across that channel. And the day that she did it, she had uh, some boats that were flanking her. Check this out to make sure that no sharks got her. But they also were there in case she had trouble. And so she started out and she swam for 15 hours and a heavy fog came in and she began to get fatigued and tired. And her mom was one of the people who were in the boat and some other people that were there and they were like, don't give up. You can do it. You can do it. And all there was was thick fog. And so she couldn't see where the shoreline was or how much farther she had to go. And she finally got discouraged and she said, I can't do it anymore. You got to pull me out. And when she was pulled out after 15 hours of swimming, she was one mile from the shore. And she was so disappointed. And she admitted that it wasn't even so much that she was so tired. It was the fact that she had no hope of getting there because she couldn't see where the shore was. And so she decided to try it again. And the same kind of a thing. It started out, it was a clear day. A fog rolled in. And this time she succeeded. And here's what she said. She said that she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam. The fog had caused her to give up hope. And without hope, she gave up on the goal that she was pursuing. I think that reminds us that we all need hope. And for years, hundreds of years, the Christian church has been a place that's been instilled with hope in the face of some of the most difficult trials in life because of the life and death And resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Easter is a reminder that the follower of Christ lives day to day, in in and out, with the power that can overcome any challenge. In our darkest days, it gives us light. In overwhelming discouragement, it gives us faith. In the midst of devastating loss, it gives us joy. And in times of divisiveness, it gives us something that unifies us. It reminds us that the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And that gives us hope. The next few weeks, we want to look at uh, the last few days that Jesus was alive. Then we'll look at his death, but we'll also look at his legacy that he's left, the legacy of hope based on his life and his death and his resurrection. And I just believe today that some of you here need to hear this message today about the life of Jesus and how he gives us hope. And I don't know if you came looking for it, or you might be surprised by it, or if you'll be relieved that you heard it. But I wondered if right where you are, if you would be willing, if we all just close our eyes and bow our head, but maybe right where you are, would you be willing to just say, God, I want to hear from you today. Would you please speak to me through your word? And I'm willing to receive it. God, thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts and meet our needs. And may you be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 26 and 27. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the way it's put together, the New Testament starts with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's the Jesus material. It's about his life and his teaching. And so we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 26 and 27 primarily. But we'll pull in a few uh, pieces of information from some of the other Gospels. So if you want to turn in your Bible or turn on your device and you want to find Matthew chapter 26, go there. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 21 because before we get to Matthew 26, we've got to understand the context. What we're going to be looking at is so filled with relationships that are in conflict and there's so many power struggles going on behind the scenes It'll be helpful for you to just listen as we start where we traditionally do on this Sunday with the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So you listen as I read. Verse 7, it says, They, the disciples, brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest heaven and when Jesus entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred and asked who is this and the crowds answered this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee and so today we're not going to focus so much on that entry but I want you to see what happened directly after that and then we're going to look at some events that led up to the trials of Jesus. Do you know what Jesus did immediately after that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, being recognized by the religious people in, the, in, in that group as the Messiah? He went to the temple, but he didn't go there for a friendly visit. Listen what he did in verse 12. We read that Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Wow. So he comes into Jerusalem recognized as the king and all these praises. And the first thing he does is go to the temple, the place of worship. And he's angry because people are corrupting it. They're buying and selling things for the making of money and they're abusing the people who are coming there to worship. And he turns over the tables and he chases them out. Verse 14 says that he healed a blind and a lame person there at the temple. But notice, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw these wonderful things they did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So something's going on here. Jesus is being worshiped. By the people, he's becoming popular with them. He chases the money changers out of the temple, and then he heals some people. And people are coming to Jesus now out of relief that this is what a religious leader is supposed to be like. And those religious leaders, rather than either repenting or acknowledging Jesus and who he is, they're indignant about it. So there's a relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders that's going to be key To the events that we look at today. So let's fast forward now to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 3. And these will be on the screen for you as well. It says, Then the chief priests and elders, same group of people, assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Now, when they say a palace and a group's going to gather here, they're actually going to hold a trial in this guy's house. So think about your house, your living room, maybe, or your garage. He you guys ready to hold a trial there with a huge crowd? Well, he had a palace. We have a picture of what we think was uh, probably his house or what it looked like. And you can see there, it really is a palace with a lot of different connected courts. And so he's called these religious leaders to meet here in this palace. This is his home. Now, what are they meeting here to talk about? Look at verse 4. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to do what? Kill him. Man, has this relationship soured. Where we started, they were indignant. It's one thing to kind of be upset with people or think, who do they think they are, right? Now there's a group of people, the high priest and the religious leaders now are meeting together to say, we've got to get rid of this guy. How can we kill him? That should shock us. First to hear religious leaders talk like that. But then what in the world happened? What has Jesus done to these people that now they're plotting to kill him? But they didn't want to do it during the festival, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. Jesus has challenged the high priest and the religious structure as he's come in as the Messiah. Messiah. The high priest position was one that had become politicized. There's a guy named Annas that you read about a little bit earlier. He has been connected to the high priesthood now for over 20 years. Under the Roman authority, they appoint this position. And so Annas has been the high priest, and then he's had five sons that have succeeded him. And now Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And what he's established is akin to like a mafia-type family. Through a position that was appointed by God to be a mediator for his people. He's corrupted it. It's all about power and status. And it's about money. Remember Jesus chasing them out of the temple? The high priest was responsible for the temple and what went on there. And they were taking advantage of the people for their own selfish gain. And Jesus has come in and confronted that. He's also come as demonstrating what a true high priest should be. Someone who loves the people and loves God and serves them. There's pressure then on the high priest and these religious leaders that as Jesus' popularity is growing, they're feeling like we might have to acknowledge that this guy is the leader of the Jews. And that will put them in an awkward position with the people, but it also will put them in a difficult position with Rome. Because what Rome wanted was everything to go smoothly. And they would lose their status and power. And so their solution to the problem is not to try to work it out, not to check their own hearts, their own motives. Their solution as the religious leaders of the day is, let's kill this guy. We've got to get him quiet and get him out of the picture. And so they work with a guy named Judas, come up with a scheme to betray Jesus, and eventually he is arrested. Look at verse 57. Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled at that palace. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which would have been their official, kind of like their Supreme Court, of their uh, religious gathering there. It was a religious court. And they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Do you see the evilness, the the, the depth of this scheme? We've got to get some false witnesses so we can get this guy taken care of but look at 60 verse 60 they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward that's kind of a weird sentence huh can't find any even though a lot of false witnesses came so even the false witnesses couldn't be used to prove anything against jesus but then finally two came forward and declared this fellow said i am able to destroy the temple of god and rebuild it in three days now we hadn't said that What he had said was, as he referenced himself, that I can destroy this temple and I can rebuild it again in three days, which he's going to do when he dies and then he comes back to life in the resurrection. But they're twisting his words. But even if he had said this, what they would have been concerned about was if Jesus was saying, I'm going to destroy the temple, that would have been an attack on the Jewish religious system there. Or if he's saying he can rebuild it in three days, here's a picture of the temple. There in the middle is the the temple proper. But Herod has been building this temple and all of the surrounding area for 46 years. Herod is called Herod the Great, not because he was a great guy, but because of his great architecture. So for 46 years, he's been building this temple and all the surrounding area. And it's not finished yet, but it's known as one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. So for Jesus to say, I can destroy this and I can rebuild it in three days. He would be saying, I've got some kind of miraculous power. So that would be blasphemy is what they're saying. But you see the ridiculousness of all of that. Of course, that's not what Jesus was saying, but they got two guys who say he said that. But if we go over to Mark there, we find that even these two witnesses contradicted each other. And so they were not reliable. So, The high priest stands up, verse 62, and he says to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Verse 63, But Jesus remains silent. Why would Jesus speak? There's been no true witnesses. They're all contradictory. So there's been no real proof of any crime by Jesus. Why would he risk incriminating himself? And so he just remains silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. This is so crazy. You've got a high priest who's supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God, who is corrupt, who has called together a group of people to plot to kill Jesus. And he feels like he can get Jesus to talk by saying, before God, you tell me the truth. But it just points out the hypocrisy of the whole trial. So, under oath by the living God, you tell me, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Which was the whole point, the issue that they wanted resolved. Jesus always had a good way of answering things. Verse 64, he says, you've said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament and especially Daniel chapter seven, you might not recognize that. But son of man was a title of the Messiah, the true king of the Jews who was to come. And what Jesus is saying is this. You're judging me right now. You're trying to do that. But one day, because I am the Messiah, I am that son of man. I'm going to judge all of you. Because I will come. To judge the world. And they recognize this immediately. And then one of the greatest acting jobs ever takes place in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He spoke in blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. But he already knew that Jesus had said that. Jesus several times would say when they tried to trick him with these questions, Did I not speak publicly? Have I not taught all over the land of Israel? Have you not seen the miracles that I've done that prove that I am who I say I am? So they were aware of all of that evidence. And they started from the beginning to make this a trial about Jesus being the Messiah so that they could accuse him of blasphemy. But he pretends and he tears his clothes. Look, this is blasphemy. And then look at verse 66. What a poignant question. What do you think, he said to the group? And they said, he is worthy of death. How are you feeling about the process, the judicial, judicial process of this court and this trial? Starts with a plot to get a desired outcome. And now they have it. He's worthy of of death. Now there were rules that were set up for the Sanhedrin and how the court would work similar to what we have. There were things put in place to protect against conflicts of interest, to protect witnesses and their credibility. It was to be a public trial during the daytime, not in the middle of the night, As this one will end. There was to be a presumed innocence. All of that was in place and all of that was ignored. And in just 18 hours from the time that Jesus is arrested, Jesus will be crucified. Now, that is a quick trial and a quick implementation of a capital punishment. In that day and age, it could move quickly. It's hard for us to even have a sense of that. I looked up just uh, out of curiosity in our country. Right now, if you are accused of a capital punishment crime and then you are convicted of that, the time between when you are convicted and the time that you will actually be executed, the average is 272 months. Jesus is going to be tried and killed in 18 hours. That's how quick they are moving on this. This is how determined they are to get rid of Jesus. Verse 67 then, they spit in his face, they struck him with their fist, others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And Luke tells us they also blindfolded him. As I read this and was thinking about this, I just thought, how many of us have ever actually been punched in the face? Maybe a few of us. How many of us have been punched in the face while we're blindfolded and slapped repeatedly. I don't know how long it went on. I just couldn't imagine. But I wanted us to see that before we go to the second trial, another rigged trial, that Jesus was already beaten and bruised. So I tried to think how we could illustrate that. And I just thought of uh, fighters. And it doesn't matter whether you like MMA fighting or not, but it's two guys in a sport That basically fight each other. Here's a picture of a fighter before the fight and after. I found some other ones that were worse. And I started to think about Jesus. After he goes to this kangaroo court, they say, let's put him to death. They blindfold him and they just begin to punch him and spit on him and slap him. And jeer at him. And that's the condition he's in as he heads to his second trial. And the reason there's a second trial, let me go ahead and change the slide there. The reason there's a second trial is because this was a religious trial, it was a Jewish trial. And they didn't have the authority to carry out an execution. And so now there's going to have to be another trial. That is a political one and is a Roman trial. And so verse number one of chapter 27 says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. All right. We're all in agreement. He dies. Now, how are we going to get him executed? Because we can't do that. So we've got to get Rome to execute him. Verse two. So they bound him. They led him away and they handed him over to Pilate, who is the Roman governor. They took Jesus to Pilate's home, the Praetorium it's called. Uh, Pilate actually lived in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Israel. But because of the festivals, he had traveled down and he had a permanent residence there. It's called the Praetorium. Uh, We'll show you the temple area again. Put an arrow in that far uh, back corner. There was actually a fort there, Fortress Antonio that was built. It was a Roman fort that was built into the structure of the temple just in case there ever was a rebellion or any issues. And his house probably was adjacent to that. So that's the next place that Jesus goes for his trial. Verse 11 of chapter 27. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So I'm sure Pilate was aware of the kind of case that had gone on. In general, the Romans didn't like to get involved in the religious issues. They wanted them to solve them themselves. And Rome most likely wasn't going to execute someone for a religious crime, blasphemy. So he goes right to the heart of the issue. Are you the king of the Jews? That would be the issue for him. Is there another king besides Caesar that you're to be loyal to? And Jesus, same answer. You've said so. And then when the accused, he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? We've already established that that wasn't very good. So it might not have been that helpful to answer it. But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. I think the governor was probably used to when people came before him and he had the power to acquit them or to sentence them to death. That they did everything they could to convince them that they were worthy of. Of not being punished. That they were innocent. But he's amazed this man stands before him. Who has been already sentenced to death so to speak. And now he's been brought. They're trying to convince him. And he's trying to give him a way out it seems like. And he just remains silent. And doesn't answer. And that's because he has a dilemma. Pilate doesn't want trouble with the Sanhedrin. But he doesn't want to be used by them either. So it seems like he's trying to let Jesus off the hook but jesus isn't giving him much to work with and so he thinks oh that custom there's a custom verse 15 where the governor at the festival can release a prisoner chosen by the crowd so in other words they would pick two people and the crowd got to choose which one to let go and at the time they had a very well-known prisoner a notorious criminal a murderer a thief probably hated whose name was jesus barabbas And when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? And Pilate's thinking, I've got it. Certainly they're not going to choose this notorious criminal to be released over Jesus, who seems to be a good guy, but he's got this conflict with the religious leaders. Verse 18, he did this because he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. But look at this. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. So while Pilate is asking, they're working. We don't know if they were bribing him. If they were telling him, hey, look, he's not the Messiah. Or if he is, he's not helping us get out from underneath Rome at all. He's talking about some spiritual kingdom. Whatever they did, they convinced the crowd that they should choose Barabbas. And so Pilate again says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. And they answered, Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus? who's called the Messiah. Crucify him. What a difference a week makes. From that triumphal entry to now crowds hollering, crucify him. You can tell Pilate, he knows this isn't right. He doesn't want to do this. And so he says, why? What crime has he committed they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So Pilate can see he's not getting anywhere, but he doesn't really want to do this. And so he brings out a, a bowl of water. Now, the Jewish crowd would have been very used to a bowl of water as a part of a ceremonial cleansing, a washing of hands. Jesus had a lot of discussions with the Pharisees about that kind of thing. And I think what Pilate is saying is, listen, you guys are using me and forcing me to carry out your well, I'm washing my hands of this whole thing. And he's really saying to them, I don't appreciate that you put me in this position. And so he says, I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. His blood is not on me. It's on you. And I think maybe he thought he would hear them say, well, No, 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 it's not on me. But look how hard their hearts are. All the people answered and said, His blood is on us and on our children. And so then he released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Barabbas goes free. And Jesus is condemned to die. And this begins a series of physical and emotional abuses that will ultimately culminate in his death. And that's what we focus on this week as Holy Week. Beginning today. And then Monday, Monday, Good Friday, and then Easter, Sunday. My question is this. How could this happen? I don't know if I'd ever looked at the trials, this in depth before. But the whole time you're looking at this, you're like, somebody's got to step in. This is so unjust. Jesus is being railroaded by powerful people or by a pilot who won't stand up. But how could this happen to the Son of God who came with such good intentions? Pastor John MacArthur wrote a book called The Murder of Jesus, and this is what he said. It's easy to look at the cross and conclude that this was the worst miscarriage of human justice in the history of the world. And it was. It was an evil act perpetrated at the hands of wicked men. But that's not the full story. The crucifixion of Christ was also the greatest act of divine justice ever carried out. Because God was doing something else when Jesus was convicted. When he was in the garden, before he was arrested, Jesus was wrestling with this, of going to the cross and taking the punishment of the world upon himself from his father. And he said, is there any other way to do this? But ultimately, he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. How could this happen? Jesus volunteered. He said, I'll do it. He died willingly. So we look on the surface. Jesus looks like a victim of an unjust religious and political system. That we see around us all the time, don't we? But that's not the full story. Jesus died willingly. MacArthur had continued, Though murdered unjustly and illegally by men whose intentions were only evil, Christ died willingly, becoming an atonement for the sins of the very ones who killed him. It was the greatest sacrifice ever made, the purest act of love ever carried out and ultimately an infinitely higher act of divine justice than all the human injustice it represented. God's wrath was being met in the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He said it this way in John ten eighteen, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my father, you see, despite the injustice of the trials, this event was predicted hundreds of years before it ever happened. Down to some minute details. And that leads me to a second question. Why did Jesus remain silent during the trial then? Why didn't he defend himself? Why didn't he speak up? Well, at least 700 years before Jesus' conviction This was written in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. See if it sounds familiar. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't speak up because this was a task that Jesus volunteered for. And so he did it willingly, and he died for us. If we go back up to verse 4 in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. And as I contemplated that. It helps me if I can put it in a picture form. And so I put together this diagram for us. Our pain. Our suffering. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. Our punishment. Put on him. And then through his wounds. We get our peace and our healing. So as you look at that, do you remember how the trial wrapped up with Pilate? Barabbas was released. Jesus flogged and crucified. Barabbas released. Jesus crucified. So today, I think the point is, we can walk free from guilt and sin because Jesus was convicted and he stood in for us. We can walk from guilt and sin because Jesus was convicted and he stood in. Romans 5.8, that many of you will know. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can walk free from guilt and sin because Jesus was convicted and he stood in. There's hope in that. Remember our swimmer? How did she keep her hope? She had a mental picture of what it looked like ahead. And she held on to that. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey this morning, I hope that you hear the hope that comes from a Savior who was convicted and stood in our place. And that's something that we should never forget. Whether we're hearing it for the first time, whether we're coming to understand it for the first time, or maybe we've known it and heard it and it's grown old to us. And maybe this morning it comes back fresh that Jesus did all of that for us. One of the things that Jesus did before he went to the garden was he met with his disciples for what we call the last supper and he transitioned it into the Lord's supper and in the account in Luke when he takes the bread he holds it up and he says this do in remembrance of me And so, communion of the Lord's supper is so that we never forget what we just talked about this morning and so we're going to go ahead and take a few minutes to take the Lord's supper so we're going to invite our elders to come forward that are going to help us pray And then if you did not receive one of the elements and you'd like one, a couple of our ushers are just going to walk down the aisle here and you can just raise your hand or up in the balcony uh, you could grab one.